John 12. Our sermon text is verses 12 through 36, but let us read, begin reading at verse 1. Give your attention to the reading of God's holy word, John 12, verse 1, giving special attention beginning at verse 12. Once again, God's holy, inerrant, infallible word. Give your attention to its reading. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, 
We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray once more. So great God, we come humbly before your word and ask that you would be pleased to speak powerfully through it by the power of your spirit and build up your church and those who are gathered here today, O oh Father, you know their needs and would you minister to each according to their needs, whether it be conviction of sin, whether it be comfort in Christ or anything else, O oh Father. Would you be pleased to do that work for your glory, for Christ's sake? Amen. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, are we growing in our understanding and appreciation of the salvation and the victory we have in King Jesus? Are we growing in our understanding and appreciation of the salvation and the victory that we have through King Jesus. Imagine that there's a young man about to turn 16, and his father says to him, uh, come your 16th birthday, I'll make sure that you have an adequate vehicle. Uh, I'll make sure, I'll take care of it. All while growing up, this boy's dad has gone on and on about how, how his first car was sort of a clunker, but it got him from A to B, and it, it builds it built character in him. And so the, the son, about to turn 16, fully expects that sort of the same kind of thing will happen. Dad's going to give me a, a clunker car, and he'll talk a lot about how it builds my character. But that's fine. I'll, I'll have an adequate vehicle. And that's really uh, all I suppose I could expect or ask for. But imagine on that day, he goes out into the, the driveway, and there's a brand new luxury or, or sports car, way, way beyond what someone might have expected. Uh, it's certainly objectively better than what this young man was expecting. Something safer, more reliable, it looks better, has infinitely more value, value, all those kinds of things. So how sad would it be if the young man did not have the eyes to see of the greatness of what his father had given to him? Imagine he turns to his father and says, you've robbed me, robbed me of my hope. I was hoping for the, a certain kind of car. You've gotten something different. You've gone against my expectations. How sad would it be if he did not have the eyes to see? When human beings inherit something much better than they would have expected, what is their response? Or do we even have eyes to see how much better it is than what we might have expected? The Jews of Jesus' day, perhaps, many of them wanted a revolutionary figure. Certainly many of them wanted that and expected that in their Messiah. Someone who would end the Roman uh, occupation, who would bring about a, a new Davidic rule, a more glorious Davidic rule. But what is the rule and the reign that Jesus brings about? It's a kingdom of reconciliation, of, of eternal life, of salvation, much better than what those would have been expecting. Today, many people think Jesus is good for earthly success for the bottom line, for the bank account, for prosperity, for bodily health. But what he gives is so much better. 
And will we have the eyes to see it? It's something similar to what C.S. Lewis said, saying that the glories of God in Jesus Christ can be likened to when you have two children playing in, in mud pies. And that's sort of the occupation that we tend to have with, with this world. If our eyes are, are lowered on the horizon of this world, we're like children playing in the mud, thinking that there's nothing better. And imagine somebody comes up to these two children playing in the mud and, and, and offers them a vacation at the sea or something lavish, something glorious. And, and the children are so preoccupied with their mud that they won't be pulled away from it. When our expectations are below, oftentimes we don't have the eyes to see what Jesus gives to us. See, Jesus is a king, but he's a saving king. He is a victorious king, but he is one who is victorious over sin and death and the fall. And he gives to us our greatest victory over our greatest enemy. So here's our theme this morning as we'll work through these things somewhat quickly, I know. But since the salvation and victory of our King Jesus are infinitely better and more glorious than what our own hands can achieve. Say that again. Since the salvation and victory of our King Jesus are infinitely better and more glorious than anything we could achieve or accomplish, we must lay down our lives. We must believe in and live for the King of Kings. Very simple message and a foundational uh, Christian principles here that we'll think about this morning. Since what Jesus gives to us is so much better, we must lay down our lives. We must believe in him. We must live for him. But first, we have this, uh, this notion, this truth about Jesus that he is a, a king. That first Palm Sunday shows that very clearly. Jesus is a king, and there's no mistaking it. Now, at that time, people were looking for a king. There was a climate of, of, of expectation. And particularly on this day, there, there may have been more of an excitement about the notion of, of a Messiah for several reasons. The first was Passover. We're, we're getting close. This is the week of Passover, as we read in, in John chapter 12. Imagine celebrating 4th of July, but under the occupation of another country. Imagine another country comes and conquers the United States, and July 4th comes around and we sort of, uh, through the years, we continue to observe and, and celebrate July 4th, but we know that independence and freedom in that uh, geopolitical sense is not really truly what's going on. And that would have been something like what's happening at Passover. Passover was the, the remembering God set us free from Egypt. He led us out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He made us a free people and gave us uh, uh, his own land flowing with milk and honey. But what was the reality at the time of Jesus. Rome was occupying the land, and, and uh, they certainly, in, in that sense, were not free. And so there would have been this kind of latent energy about, will there ever be a day when we can celebrate it truly again? Also, at that time, there was a regularity of, of uh, those who claimed to be the Messiah. We know of, of several uh, well over a dozen of those who claimed to be Messiah in, around, in and around the time of Jesus in the first century and who, who got somewhat of a, of a movement going. Oftentimes it was very violent and, and sort of came down to basically rioting and insurrection. But there were many of those who claimed to be Messiah. And it shows this is what people were thinking about. People were thinking about the Messiah during the, the, the times of, of Jesus Christ. 
And then as we read in John 12, the, the, the miracles of Jesus. Jesus had shown this special power and authority. And in John chapter 11, all of the, the, the signs of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, are brought to a, a pinnacle, a climax in the resurrection of Lazarus. Here is a man who has real power, real authority. And so all of these things are kind of working together as Jesus goes from Bethany into Jerusalem. And this energy is just building and building. And you see, particularly because of the sign of raising Lazarus from the dead, how people are running to Jesus and also increasing in opposition to Jesus. So it's a king they want, and it's a king that they get. There is a clear declaration that Jesus is a king, and he is greeted like a king. You notice as we read in John 12, they, they come out with branches of palm trees, they're crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It would have been customary to, to, to go out and to greet someone of royalty outside the gates of the city and then accompany them back. That gives us really a picture of the, the second coming of Christ, that we will be raised to meet the Lord in the air. We go out to meet the king who comes in all of his glory. They go out to meet him as, as one who is a king. They also wave these palm branches, which would have been um, something of a of a symbol of, of national glory of that part of the world. Palm branches were synonymous with that region. And so there, there's, a, there's a, a taste of, of national pride being Israelite pride and almost nationalism, perhaps, that it, it would have come to symbolize this, this energy around, will we ever be free once again? And so it's something of a, of a, of a national flag almost and it operates almost like the flag of, of Hong Kong, which you know, seeks to be separate from, from China. And there's a, a big discussion about that. There's a, there's a flag of Hong Kong, it, almost like perhaps the flag of Catalonia in Spain, a, a region where people are seeking to, to, to be recognized as their own uh, country apart from Spain. Or... Something like the, the flag of Texas, you know, people who come from Texas and wave their flag and say, I'm from the Republic of Texas, you know the people I'm talking about. Something like that. This is what uh, the palm branch would have represented, something like that, a, a people within a people who wants to kind of recover their own national glory. They also quote Psalm 118 and bring to, bring to it also their own declaration, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which we read from Psalm 18. Even the king of Israel. So you see that Psalm 118 is quoted and then given the interpretation, this is the king of Israel. This one is the king. The one who comes in the name of the Lord is the one who comes as the, as the conqueror. So they want a king. They get a king. Jesus leaves no doubt, does he? He confirms that when he comes riding in a donkey. We read in Zechariah 9, Jesus is saying, yes, I am a king. But what kind of king? He leaves no doubt about who he is, and yet he dampens those earthly expectations. If someone was expecting the, the conqueror of Rome to come, he dampens the expectations through what he does. He comes on a young donkey and not a war horse. Now again, we talked last week about the, the prophecies about the Messiah. You often have uh, judgment and blessing, and how do you weave those two things together? You also have a kind of glory and humility woven together in the words of, of the prophets about the Messiah. And how do you weave those two together? Well, again, Jesus is the answer. Is there anywhere in human history where you find 
uh, both glory and humility woven together like you see in Jesus Christ? Of course not. That is, that is the quintessentially what Jesus is all about. He humbled himself and is glorified. So we know how to answer that now. But putting that together before Jesus may have been a, a challenging thing. But he, he is a gentle king, isn't he? He comes gently and humbly in humility. He's a king who makes peace. Zechariah 9.10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from, from Ephraim. The, those who claimed to be Messiah in that day, again, they were men of war. And the idea of someone coming and, and reclaiming this land at that particular time would have been so far beyond uh, realistic expectations could have held. Someone who would come and, and kind of uh, defeat the Roman army would have seemed preposterous. And so for someone to actually make peace, what would it mean at that time? Well, Jesus teaches us what it means to, to make peace and the kind of peace that he's making. He also is a king for all the nations. Verse 10, his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, someone may read that before Jesus comes and says, uh, would say, the Messiah will be such a powerful king that the kingdom of Israel will be something like the kingdom of Rome is now. That's the kind of king we're waiting for. But we know that Jesus is a king for all of the nations, as we find so beautifully in this passage as it relates to these Greeks who come seeking Jesus. He is a, a king for all the nations. He's a king who makes peace. He is a king who rules a kingdom of reconciliation, a kingdom which deals with sin. And we find that in verse 11 of Zechariah 9. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you. What is the blood of the covenant? Forgiveness of sins. Dealing with our standing before God. So he is a king who rules a kingdom which will deal with sin. So what does this mean for Palm Sunday? Well, we find here in this account, Jesus clearly confirming that he is a king. But this passage shows us that Jesus will not be reduced to what the crowd wants to see. Jesus will not be reduced to someone's ideas about what the king and the Messiah of Israel must be. Jesus, in this passage, shows that the excitement and the pomp of that procession must give way to deeper things. His soul is troubled as he comes to the hour of his trial. There's a salvation that will reach beyond the people of Israel. His coming death, his impending death, and the fruit of his death, and a battle that the crowd mostly does not realize a battle with the strongest forces of darkness. You see, that was the battle that Jesus was fighting. It goes beyond our physical eyes. Palm Sunday is a place where we are reminded and we clearly find, side by side, the misguided expectations that people have about God or Jesus Christ and the grander purpose of God. Misguided expectation, misguided hope, and the grander purpose of God. We are reminded of our, our own tendency, as we've talked about this morning, to create ideas about God or idols about God in our own minds. How common are these today? False notions about God. Who God is, what he does for you in your life. People have been doing this since the life of Jesus Christ. They have been doing it since the Garden of Eden. That God is to do this certain thing for me. He ought to be, feel compelled to do a certain thing for me. That is of the essence of sin, isn't it? 
convincing ourselves of something that God will not do. So what kind of a king then? Well, he's a, he's a saving king. He's a saving king. And we have, to, uh, we have to leave a lot to the side here because there's a lot in this passage, but just focusing on a couple of points. He's a saving king. Notice the, the turning point in John's gospel. What is the turning point in John's gospel? Other gospels, Matthew, Mark, the turning point is when Peter confesses him as the Christ. The turning point in John's gospel is when these Greeks come seeking Jesus. These are not Greek speaking Jews, these are Gentiles. And of course, it beautifully illustrates what we are noticing in this passage. A crowd of people who are excited about what Jesus will do and, and mixing perhaps some good but many bad expectations about what the Messiah will do with people throughout Jerusalem that would probably at this point willingly take up arms to fight on the side of Jesus. He could have worked this crowd into a frenzy. He could have come on a war horse and, and kind of uh, rounded up a bunch of troops to try to end the Roman occupation in that city. But this becomes the hinge point of the gospel. Gentiles seeking Jesus. They come and they say these beautiful words, we wish to see Jesus. I think it's true that they're speaking more than they know. And we see that often in the Gospels. They're speaking more than they know. We don't want to impute to them the, the, the purest motives or this full understanding of who Jesus is. But they say these beautiful words, we wish to see Jesus. You'll find this on the inside of many pulpits. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Because when a, when a preacher puts Jesus Christ on display for a congregation to behold, there is nothing better that he could be doing. That is of the essence of, of preaching. And it reminds us that Jesus is to be adored. He is to be sought. He is to be seen. And it raises a question for us today, doesn't it? Do you wish to see Jesus? And do you wish to see Jesus as he truly is? As he has revealed himself in his word? Not according to your own ideas. Do you wish to see the real, the true Jesus? Certainly he is chief among ten thousands. He is the pinnacle of beauty and delight. But he reveals himself to us. Do you wish to see him? But at this moment, it triggers something for Jesus. He now knows that it is time to put on display the fullness of redemption on the cross. It is time for him to go and accomplish why he came to the earth in the first place, notice he, he doesn't, as far as we're told, have an audience with these Greeks. He doesn't speak with them. Part of the reason for that may be that he understands as his popularity is increasing, which is certainly happening at this time, it would be easy to get the wrong idea about Jesus, as many people have done. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Maybe he can give to me whatever I need, whatever my body needs. Maybe he can give it to me. So Jesus now notices it's time to go to the cross. It's time to confront the forces of evil and sin and death and darkness, but it's also time to put on display what it will mean to believe in him and to follow him. The cross is foolishness to Greeks and a stumbling block to Jews. So now Jesus puts it all on display. If people truly want to see him, he must show the fullness of what he is, which is a crucified Savior, 
And will you believe and embrace and love and give your life to one who went to a cross and who died a shameful death on a Roman cross? Jesus teaches, though, that only through death can life spring forth. He uses this, uh, this illustration of, of a seed. If a seed were to remain out of the ground, if it were never to be planted, the life that it has within it and all of the, all of the information, all that is needed for uh, an enormous plant or tree is planted there in that little seed. It's an amazing thing about life, isn't it? Jesus says, if my righteous life, if my worth is not planted into the ground through death, then all that can spring forth from it will not indeed come about. How does the Heidelberg Catechism put it? Why did Jesus have to go all the way to death? Because only a crucified Savior could pay for sin. God's truth and justice require it. But then Jesus teaches us this. It's not just he that must die. We too must die. He expands on the point to then apply it to us, doesn't he? If a seed doesn't go into the ground, its life can't spring forth. But then he brings himself to speak uh, about the call of discipleship upon us. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He teaches about those who will follow him to show that we must follow him into suffering and death. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. See, we can't truly serve Jesus without following him. We can't truly serve Jesus without embracing the suffering that comes along with the life to which he calls us. See, there is a death that we all must die, and it begins with death to self, doesn't it? There's a death we all must die, and it begins with dying to self. It begins with laying down the projects of self-discovery, self-fulfillment, and letting the life of Christ resound in our hearts and to work itself out from our hearts into our lives. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says this, Christ died so that... Now, how would you finish that sentence? Christ died so that we can be forgiven. Christ died so that we would have eternal life. Yes, True, gloriously true, abundantly true. But here it says, Christ died so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him. How often do you think about that relative to the death of Christ? He died so that I would live for him. He died so that I would die to myself, so that I would lay down my life, so that I would lay aside the obsessions of this culture and this age, which is so obsessed with the self. And he died so that I would live the life of Jesus Christ, as Galatians 2.20 says. It's no longer I who live. Jesus Christ lives in me. What does it mean to follow Christ, to live for him, to lay down your life? To deny the self. So it's a call to self-denial, but it's also a call to suffering, to embrace suffering. And there are many ways that that will come to us if we simply are willing to live for Christ. If we, if we lay down our lives, suffering will come. We don't know particularly what it is in any instance. But Jesus gives us two things to think about relative to this call to lay down our lives. Verse 27, now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this purpose I have come to this hour. 
He knows what is coming. His human soul is troubled. And how does he steel himself or resolve himself to what lies ahead of him? I have come for this very purpose. If I lay aside my mission now, everything is lost. I don't want to follow through with it. My soul is troubled. But if I abandon everything now, it is all lost. And so, remembering Jesus, we must remember the same thing. When suffering comes, and it may be great pain through tragedy, it may be sickness, it may be being slandered on behalf of the name of Christ. Perhaps it is less gainful employment or it is losing some measure of employment or a job because of the stand that you particularly take for Christ or the life to which he calls you, things that you will not do. There will be something that comes your way. And when that comes, you need to remind yourself of many things, but here in this text, two things. First is this, Jesus knows Jesus knows what it means to have his soul be troubled on behalf of living for the glory of God in obedience to him. He knows. There is nothing that I will go through to to which Jesus cannot relate. He's a great and sympathetic, merciful, wonderful high priest who comes alongside us in our suffering. And then secondly this, that God brings you to your suffering so that you would glorify him in and through it, and for that very purpose. Jesus looks at his suffering, he says, for this purpose I've come to this hour. And when you are faced with suffering on behalf of Jesus Christ, you need to say, for this purpose I was brought to this hour to glorify God in the midst of my suffering, to glorify God in the midst of my pain, to glorify God in the midst of my uh, uh, prevailing weakness of the flesh. Remember those things. And then Jesus gives us the comfort of verse 26, for if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. If you serve Jesus Christ, if you give yourself to the beloved Son of God, then your heavenly Father will honor you. Let that wonderful promise steal your resolve against the sufferings that you face. In order to do that, you must have the eyes to see his salvation and his glory and his victory. So Jesus reminds us there at the end, that he is destined for victory. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. When I am lifted up from this earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. You see, once again, he focuses on a a different aspect of his death. He, He showed, he said this to show that he will be victorious. The Westminster Confession, chapter 8, says that Jesus, by his sacrifice, by his perfect obedience, has purchased not only reconciliation but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven. He is a victorious king. And understanding his salvation and his victory, we will gladly live for him. And he calls us to believe in light of that, doesn't he? Right at the end, verse 35, Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Jesus Christ gives to his people a wonderfully glorious salvation and victory and inheritance. And we proclaim him here this morning as the one who has the light of life and is the light of all men. 
put, put full, fully on display for us to see and to look at his work and his salvation and his victory and to say, believe in him. Trust in him. Lay down your life for him. When you suffer, remember that he knows and he understands. And he says, for that very purpose, you have come to this hour and see his victory. Let his victory lift the eyes of your hearts up to heaven where he has seated his people. Indeed, he is the one who has the light of life. So look to him and trust in him anew this morning. Let's pray.